So we're going to get into God's word. And we have been in the gospel of John going through this whole book of the Bible, verse by verse. We've been in it since January of last year. I'm not kidding. It's been a trek. It's been a journey. This is actually the 40th week in this sermon series. Crazy. Yes. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. It's cool. And we have seen in the Gospel of John a whole bunch of stuff. We've been around the block, but it all circles around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Who's this Gospel of John about? Jesus Christ. We have seen in the early parts of John these claims of his identity, his claims to be God, and they're all throughout the book. Just a revelation of his character and his nature and who he really is. We've seen all that. We have seen these claims backed up by tremendous signs and wonders and miracles and healings and teaching and power and authority that are undeniable that support his claim about who he is. We've seen all that. We've seen people come into conflict with Jesus in this Gospel of John who disagree that he is who he says to be. And they've fought against him. And he's kind of argued with them. We've seen all of that. We've spent this whole winter since Christmas in what's called the farewell discourse between John 13 and John 17, where Jesus is with his disciples. They're in this upper room, this intimate setting. It's the night before he knows that he's going to be going to the cross to die in our place for our sins. And he is giving his disciples this parting message of, I'm about to leave, and here's what you need to know when I'm gone. It was super important for them. It's also super critically important for us. So just a ton of stuff we've done, even in the last few months. And here we are this morning at another turning point in the Gospel of John. The narrative is about to shift again. All of that stuff that we've spent, I don't know, 39 other weeks doing, all that's behind us. And what's now before us in this Gospel of John is the cross. It's the Easter story. How many of you guys have been in the church, not necessarily our church, but in the church for more than like five years, let's say? Show of hands. Yeah, a lot of you guys. Then you will have heard the Easter story before. I grew up in the church I'm 31 now, so I have heard the Easter story at least 31 times, but more than that even. But do you know something? We're going to keep on coming back to the Easter story because it is the greatest story that's ever been told. In fact, it's more than just a story, you know. This is the single greatest, most impactful, life-changing, eternity-altering truth you will ever wrap your hands around in this life. It is that significant. So we're coming back to it again and again and again. We are going to relive, maybe for the, I don't know how old you are, maybe for the 60th time, 100th time, I don't know, we're going to relive this story. We're going to recount all that Jesus went through for us, his suffering, his sacrifice, his death. We're going to spend a few weeks doing that in the Gospel of John. And we're also, because it's us, we're going to take some sidebars along the way. We have one of those today. It's going to be fun. But are we ready? This is the Easter story. Let's go. John 18, 1. Turn there in your Bible right now. John 18, 1. That sounded like a threat. Turn there right now or else. 
I'm going to read to you. It's also on the screen. John 18, 1 through 27. It starts out like this. When Jesus had spoken these words, a.k.a. everything we've just read from chapter 13 to 17, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Sounds like it's going to be friendly, right? Lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. That was from last week, by the way, John chapter 17, I think verse 12. Then Simon Peter, having a sword drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. I always wondered why we needed to know his name, but there it is. We know it now. Jesus then said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. We read that back in John eleven fifty. This is the same guy. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. By the way, that other disciple, probably John that wrote this book. That's how he often refers to himself, kind of in that distant tense. It's probably him. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Peter said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. See, he knew it was going to come back and get him, right? He asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. You might remember back in John chapter 13, Jesus said that's what was going to happen. Before the night was over, Peter was going to deny him three times. So there's a lot going on there, right? 
we'll start unpacking this by talking first about the things that happen in the garden. Somebody say the garden. Now, for context's sake here, just to set this up, here's what's going on in and around this. Jesus knows he's going to the cross, right? We've seen that. He's talked openly about it with his disciples. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to suffer and die for sin. That's happening. Simultaneously, meanwhile, the Jewish leaders want Jesus arrested. They hate him. They're against him. And they've been plotting against him for a while. And now Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, has come along. He's aligned himself with Jesus' enemies. It was predicted and and said, talked about that in John 13. Judas is going to betray Jesus to his enemies. This is all happening in and around Jerusalem. It's happening during the time of Passover. That's the high holiday on the Jewish calendar. And this is all taking place at night. Okay, remember all that stuff? Yes? Okay. It says this, when Jesus had said these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. Now, if you go to the next slide, I believe there's a map somewhere. Da-da-da-da, there's the map. I am unapologetically a map person. Sorry, not sorry. I unapologize. I know that's like written kind of small, but you get your readers on here. You can read this. In that sort of beige-ish, brownish shape, whatever shape that is, that, that is kind of the wall of the city of Jerusalem. In the bottom left corner... I can read it because I'm close. It says upper room. That's traditionally where it's understood-ish to be where Jesus had that meal and that talk with his disciples. It says he left there and he went out. So he went to the right. That would be the east for all you non-geography people. Although just because you turn right somewhere doesn't mean you're going east. But get a GPS. We'll pray for you. Now, he goes out. He goes out to the right across this brook Kidron, which is just outside the city wall, outside of Jerusalem. Now, that brook Kidron has been mentioned other places in the scriptures. One of those times is in 2 Samuel chapter 15, which kind of draws a parallel to what's happening here. In 2 Samuel 15, King David, who is the king who resides and reigns from Jerusalem, he is being betrayed by his son Absalom, somebody close to him. And in response to this betrayal... King David flees the city and he goes by way of crossing this brook Kidron. And here now, a thousand years later, here's Jesus, the son of David, a descendant of David. He's being betrayed by someone close to him and he goes out across the same place. It says they crossed the brook. You see that green thing? I don't know how bad your eyes are, but you can see that green rectangle up toward the upper right, can you? Can you see that? Somebody's like, I still can't see it. Up there is where this garden was. It says they went to the garden. Now, this garden is not named by name in the Gospel of John, but when we read the other Gospels, we know that this is the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus has gone with his disciples. It says that he often met with them there. In fact, some people think that might have even been a place where they would stay overnight. They would lodge there. Uh, If you think about it, it, I don't know, it might have been a thing. Jerusalem would have been really busy at this time. It's Passover. City's all full of people. Jesus already had at his birth that there's no room at the inn for you thing. So it could happen again. But in any rate, in any case, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus and his 11 disciples. And it says that Judas also knew the place. Because he'd been there with Jesus before. Remember, Judas has gone out. He's meeting with Jesus' enemies to betray him. The leaders want Jesus arrested. And as we've seen in other places in John, they're too cowardly to do it in public. Jesus often would teach publicly. 
He would be in public places, right in broad daylight, right in the middle of everything where they could easily said, there he is, let's get him, let's arrest him. But they were too chicken to do it. So now they're coming by night, by stealth. But here's the problem. Obviously, they didn't know where Jesus was going to be. This was pre-FBI satellite gear days where they could just trace your phone call or go onto the GPS on your phone and figure out exactly where you are. No, they don't know where he's going to be. But Judas says, I think I know where he's going to be. I'll lead you right to him. So he does. It says in verse 3, the mob shows up. And that's literally what it is. That's a mob. This is the goon squad showing up. This is not the legitimate police coming to perform a legitimate arrest for someone that had legitimately done a crime. Not what's happening here. I don't know about you. I would not personally prefer it if I had a knock on my door in the middle of the day, nice polite knock, and I went to the door, and it was the police, and they said, Braden, you have committed a crime. We've proven it, and we need to put you under arrest, so please calmly come with us. Uh, we'll treat you real nice. We won't rough you up. Just get in this police car. We'll take you down to the station. You know, maybe there'll be a trial and it'll be a fair trial. That's like the opposite of what's happening here, okay? This is the mob that has shown up at night. This is a, this is a big word of the day, a clandestine meeting. It's not supposed to be happening. This is not how an arrest was supposed to be made, but here they are. Jesus, in verse four, it says he knew all that was gonna happen to him. He knew already. You want to know why and how he knew? Because he's God. He has foreknowledge. He is actually completely in control of this situation. And yet, he plays along. He doesn't say, here we go, boys. Crack the knuckles. Get ready to fight. No, he says, who are you seeking? You just need to understand Jesus could easily have taken these guys, easily, just lay the beat down to them. Or as he does in other places, sometimes they wanted to lay their hands on him and he would just somehow slip away. You ever read that? He just disappears. That's pretty cool. That might be handy for some of us sometimes. I don't know. I don't have that gift. Jesus did. But he stays. He said, who are you seeking? It says in verse 5 that Judas, his betrayer, was standing with them. So Judas has made his choice. He has chosen foolishly. He has chosen tragically, but he has made his choice. Here's something important you need to know. Each of us has a choice to make as well. Are you going to side with Jesus or are you not? We all have that choice. Here's what some people try to do, though. They say, I'm just in the middle. I'm neutral. Right? You, you love Jesus, that's cool, good for you, do your thing. I'm not a Christian, but I'm not against Jesus, so I mean, I'm just here in the middle somewhere. Guess what? There is no middle. There's no middle. There's no neutral. Matter of fact, if that's you, let me just go ahead and offend you. It'd be my pleasure to offend you. If you are trying to play that middle ground card about Jesus, you are actually on the exact same side as Judas. Jesus said in another place, anyone who is not for me is against me. There's two choices. It's black and white. And we all have to make that choice. Jesus says, who are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. He answers in verse 6, I am he. If you've been following along in this gospel of John, those words, I am, should sound familiar to you. In fact, some of your translations, if you're following along, might only have the words I am in there. 
That is language for God. Jesus has used this repeatedly through the Gospel of John to point to his identity. He's God. He's God. In fact, there were seven other times in the book of John where he brings this up. In John 6.35, he says, I am the bread of life. In John 8.12, he says, I am the light of the world. In John 10.7, he says, I am the door. John 10.11, he says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15.1, I am the true vine. And here he says it again, I am he. And when he says, I am he, these punks, this mob, it says they drew back and they fell onto the ground. These guys could not even stand before the revelation of his identity, the revelation of his power, the revelation of who he is. They're down on the ground. Even Judas, by the way, it says he was among them. Judas, who was this former friend who decided he could outfox Jesus and he knew better and he knew the better path and Jesus must not be that special. Even he is down on his face on the ground, friends, because he's God. Jesus is God. He is the same God it talks about in Psalm 66. It says, so great is his power that even his enemies come cringing before him. And here it's happening. He's the same God that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Did you notice that says every knee, every tongue, regardless of what you think about him, you're going to bow before him one day. You're going to fall before him one day like these guys did. He is God. He is demonstrating and reminding who he is. Thank you. (laughs) I'm like, should I say anything or not? I love you guys. Oh, man. So he asks them again, after this little display of power, just reminding them who he is, he asks them again, who are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. He says, that's me. If you're after me, let these men go, because they're innocent. By the way, Jesus was also innocent. He did this to fulfill the word that he had spoken, that he had not lost even one. Verse 10, Peter does the ear thing. We're going to talk about the ear thing later, don't worry. It won't be too graphic, I promise. And uh, in response to him cutting off the guy's ear, Jesus says, good job, Peter, swing again. No. Swing harder next time. No. He says, no, 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 no. He says, put your sword away. This is a key verse in this text. He says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me. That's the whole point of everything that's happening here. Jesus is not going through this and going to go through some other stuff in the subsequent text that we're going to read in the coming weeks. He's not doing that just because. He's not doing this to be a political statement or to, for a publicity stunt. Jesus is doing all of this. Everything he will go through is so that he can drink the cup that the Father has given him. That language of drinking the cup, that is something that's used all across Scripture, and it's something that is used in reference to the wrath of God. We like to think of God as the nice, flowery, he's only loving, and bright colors, and all this stuff. And I mean, yes, there's some truth there, but God is also a God of justice. God is also a God of wrath. Heat just got turned up in here, I think. God hates sin. 
How many of you have sinned? Right. We have all sinned. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is turning our back on God. It's going against the word and the law of God. It's putting ourselves above God, saying, I know better. I am my own God, and I can do what I want. And we've all sinned in all kinds of various ways. Here's what you need to know about the Lord. He does not just sweep our sin under the rug. He doesn't just turn a blind eye. Oh, well, that wasn't that big a deal. God hates sin. And God will repay every sin that's ever been committed. So this language of this cup, the scriptures talk about how his cup is being filled up, this cup of his wrath, his vengeance, his fury on sin, which will be poured out. There's no if, it's when. And Jesus says, I'm here to drink that cup. Hello. You and I have sinned. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. You and I are supposed to be drinking this cup because we deserve it. We're the ones who sinned. It's the wrath against our sin. It's what we should be drinking, but he says, I am here to drink it. That's the whole deal with the Easter story. Jesus loves you. God loves you. Even in spite of yourself, even in spite of your sin, Jesus shows up into our mess to drink the cup of God's wrath for our sin. And notice again, who gives him the cup? It says right in there. Somebody tell me, who gives him the cup? Verse 11, the Father. Can you imagine the pain? Can you imagine the heartache? God so loved the world that he gave his only son to save a wretched and rebellious people like us. But that's what he's done. Jesus is here to drink the cup so we don't have to drink it. This is the Easter story. So let's sum this up. Oh, actually, I missed verse 12. It says, they arrested him and they bound him and they led him away like he's cattle, like he's some common criminal, even though he's innocent. Now let's sum up. Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of heaven and earth, he knows what's coming for him. None of this has taken him by surprise. He allows himself to be given up to his enemies, He goes through this betrayal. He allows himself to be arrested and to be treated like a criminal, even though he was innocent. And he does it all to drink the cup that we're supposed to be drinking. With me so far? Give me a thumbs up if you're with me so far. Okay, let's roll on then. The plot thickens. The scene changes here. In verse 13, it says, They led him away to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Something about that line really kept sticking into me this week. I wanted to roll quickly past it, but I couldn't get past this line. Something didn't seem right to me about this sentence. And I uncovered what I think it is. First of all, this language of priest, we talked about this just last week. It's all through the scriptures. Way back in Old Testament times, God appointed priests, a priesthood, to be the people who would stand 
as a mediator between God and people, right? We talked about this last week. Here's God. He's holy. He's sinless. He's blameless. He's perfect. Here's us. We're the opposite of all that. Thanks for coming. Priests would stand in the gap on behalf of the people. They would offer sacrifices. They would make atonement for the sin, payment for the sin of the people unto God. Among the rank of the priesthood, there was to be one high priest. Somebody say high priest. This was set up by God way, way back in the book of Exodus. The high priest, oh, this will be a fun trivia question for you. I love trivia. Does anyone know who the first high priest of Israel was? I heard somebody say it. It was Aaron. Aaron, the brother of Moses, was appointed. And the way it's supposed to work is that there was one high priest at a time, and they would go. Aaron was the high priest for his life. And then when his life ended, that would pass on to his son. And his son would then be the high priest for the rest of his life. And that would get passed on to his son. It was supposed to just be a natural sequence like that. But here, the phrase that stuck with me, it said that Caiaphas was the high priest that year. I said, what do you mean that year? Why does it matter what year? And I got digging. I did a deep dive on the high priesthood. I will spare you 99% of those details. It was a wormhole that I went down. I came back. We're here. It's okay. I lived to tell about it. It turns out, this will not shock you, the priesthood was super corrupt in those days. That shouldn't be a shock to you. It would get passed around, this high priest office would get passed around like a baton or a hot potato. There were new high priests all the time. This guy, Annas, that it talks about, he was the high priest about 15 or 20 years before this was taking place, from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. And five of his sons came along in the next few years, and they all kind of took a turn being the high priest. And now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is the high priest. Furthermore, I read that they actually involved the Romans. So at this time, the Romans were the overlords of the Jewish people. The Roman Empire had taken over. The Romans should have absolutely nothing to do with who the high priest is in Israel. Nothing. But I read that there was collusion there. It was very political, and the Romans would step in, and now you're going to be the high priest. Probably, oh, this guy gave me a little bribe, so now you know his family can be the super corrupt Super, super corrupt. You can picture this guy, Annas. He's this wealthy, rich, influential, well-connected guy. And his family has just come in and out of this high priesthood. It's all wrong. It's all wrong. But this is what's happening here. So Annas is called the high priest in this text. But he wasn't the high priest that year. Super, super weird. But that's some of the stuff that's going on. It says in verse 19 that Annas was questioning Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Remember, this guy's not the high priest. What business does he have to be doing this? Probably none. But there he is anyway. And Jesus, he's not really having it. He says, hey, I've spoken openly to you. Everything I've said, I've said in public. I've said it to lots of people. Why don't you go ask them what I said? He speaks publicly, yet he got arrested privately, right? Another clue, something's not right here. This is not by the book. This is not how it's supposed to happen. 
at this response, it says that one of the servants of Anna struck Jesus. It says likely an open-handed slap in the face strikes him. Jesus says, if I'm wrong, if what I'm saying is wrong, prove it. Bear witness. You won't be able to. But if I'm right, why are you striking me? Again, this is not how it's supposed to be happening. This is not the justice system at work. This is corruption. This is evil. This is wickedness. They apparently decide Jesus is not giving them the information they want, so they've had enough with him. In verse 24, it says, they then send him bound to Caiaphas, who actually was the high priest, even though they had no proof of any wrongdoing because he was innocent. This is the Easter story. This is what Jesus went through, and it's going to get even more intense. I almost said intenser. That's not probably a word. The grammar police can come after me. It's going to get more intense as we go in the coming weeks. But already you get a clue how deep this is, how, how deep this runs. So let's sum up again. Jesus, God, the Lord, he is allowing himself to be falsely accused, to be treated like a criminal, to be abused, to be mistreated by this corrupt group of people in this corrupted system where everything was wrong and not the way that it should have been. Jesus steps into that willingly so that he can drink the cup for us. This is Easter. This is going down. This is what Jesus went through. Like I said, the story is going to continue and intensify in the coming weeks, but we are going to take a sidebar right now. I love sidebars. I don't know if anyone else gets as excited about them as I do, but I don't care. I'm going to make it anyway. You're welcome. The sidebar we're going to make, because it's in this text we read it, there's something and someone we haven't really talked about too much yet. His name is Peter. Somebody say Peter. Peter. The narrative about Peter kind of jumps in and out through this text that we already read. And as you might suspect, this is not Peter's best day. This is not a good day at the office for him. You ever have one of those days? Maybe you had one this week. Just nothing's going right for you. Maybe it's self-inflicted. Maybe it's beyond your control. But anybody have days like that? It's just all wrong. That's Peter. Since this person is not here this morning, I'm going to tell a little story. This happened to Lori a couple weeks ago. (laughs) Forgive me, Lori, when you listen to this later. She, it's not that bad, actually. She, Lori makes all of our slides and our graphics. I'm biased. I think they look wonderful. She does a great job. But she spent a couple Saturdays ago, probably two hours on a Saturday afternoon, when she could have been doing any number of different things. She's working on the slides, pulling in graphics, doing this. I don't even know all of what she does, but she's doing that. Two hours. And we came in the next morning and went to put the slides on the computer here. And it didn't work. It just didn't work. We still don't know why. It just didn't work. Oh, that's frustrating, she says. So now she's scrambling before church because she got nothing. There's no slides. She's scrambling to get them ready. She's in a big tizzy with like a couple minutes left there. I've, I've cobbled it together. It's good enough. That's as good as it's going to be. And then on we went, and nobody probably noticed any different. So the stress was still just starting to come down from that. And if you remember two weeks ago, in the middle of the service, the projector then blew up just popped and it said, I've had enough. In other words, the slides now that Lori spent two hours working on on Saturday and now 45 minutes on on Sunday, again, 
Now the projector's dead and there's no slides anyway. So it was basically mostly a waste of time. She was not having it. She was not happy. I said, the smoking section is right anyway. She lived to tell about it. Hopefully I lived to tell about this, but anyway, okay? Not a good day. So Peter, same thing, although for him here, this is all self-inflicted. Peter's brought this all on himself. You read in verse 10, that's where it says he drew the sword and he cut the guy's ear off. He probably thought he was helping, right? He sees the mob show up, he just leaps into action. I, uh, speaking of thinking that you're helping, I'm gonna tell another story. This one's not about Lori. She's not involved. Um, after we got married, we lived in a basement apartment of a house, and this house had this really weird driveway. It was steep like this down to the road, and then the road itself was steep like this. So you kind of had this double hill situation, just really weird. And one day in the winter, I went out to shovel the driveway, and I got most of it done, and all I had left was the pile at the end, you know, a.k.a. the worst part where the plow has gone by. So I'm just starting into that, and I hear the horn honking. And I look up the hill, and there's a guy in a snow plow, like in a truck up here. Not a city plow, but just, I don't know who he was. But he has a plow, and he's going like this, like this. And I said, he wants me to move on. He's going to plow the end of my driveway out for me. Awesome. I would love to not do this. So I give him the thumbs up. I step aside over here. And that's what he does. He comes down the hill, and just in one fell swoop, he pulls in like this, plows the snow away, pulls out like this, didn't even have to change gears. Off he went. I was really happy for like three seconds because I realized that because of the way the hill was, the end of his plow dug a huge gouge into the driveway, the whole width of the driveway. The landlord was not happy. He thought he was helping. Peter thinks he's helping. But the issue here is that this is not what God's plan is, right? Jesus has other plans of what's supposed to be happening here. But Peter just leaps ahead of him, makes his own plan, just wings it, and he starts literally swinging and slicing like this. Jesus says, what are you doing? You idiot. What are you, what are you thinking? We're very prone to doing stuff like that too. Not with a sword probably, but it's really easy for us in our lives to kind of run ahead of God. Just do our own thing. God has a plan for your life. He has a will for you. God has good for you, by the way. He, he has plans to give you a hope and a future, to prosper you and not to harm you. But there come times in our lives where we say, hmm, I don't think so. I think I know better than God, and I'm going to hang a left on this one. For instance, oh, I know what God expects of me with my money, but meh, I don't think that's the way I want to do it. I'm just going to hoard all my money to myself. I'm going to not be generous because, you know, it's inflation and it's hard times and everything's so expensive. Surely God will understand. Uh, hello? We do this sometimes with relationships too. Well, I know... As a Christian, maybe I shouldn't be in that relationship with that person, maybe who's not a Christian, but oh, God, I think you're wrong on this one. I'm talking to somebody. 
I think you're wrong on this one. And man, we just get along so well and they're my soulmate and God, you just don't understand. So I know your word would lead me this way, but I'm gonna hang a left over here. We do the very same thing Peter does. Maybe it's something different for you, but where God clearly has a plan and we fail to trust in him and we go off this way, we cause damage like Peter did, unnecessarily. Doesn't need to happen. Gets worse for Peter. That wasn't the worst thing, the rebuke of Jesus on that. Throughout the course of the rest of this narrative, he goes on to deny Jesus three times. Just denies him. People say, are you one of his disciples? Nope. Gee who? No, I've never heard of him, sorry. Gee who? I don't know. He denies him. He denies him. I don't know him. Three times. This is the same guy who the same night, if you rewind back to John 13, 37, he says, I'm going to lay down my life for you, Jesus. And Jesus says, oh, really? Before this night is over, you're going to deny that you even know me three times. Wow. That's called a fall from grace. That's not good. And I don't know if you've ever wondered about Peter. Like, how does this happen? How does he go so quickly from this to this? Peter, like, he's a pretty spiritually giant kind of a guy. He, this guy goes on to write books of the Bible. He's the same guy that in, in other gospels, he literally, Jesus calls him and he, he leaves his boat, his fishing nets, his livelihood. He gives up everything to follow Jesus. He's the same guy who Jesus is walking on the water and he says, I'm gonna come out after you. And his faith is enough that for a while he's walking on the water with Jesus. This is the same guy who in another place he says, I know who you are, Jesus. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. He gets it so right so many times. How can this happen? Well, for one, Jesus said that it would happen. It's a pretty good reason. Jesus literally said, you're going to deny me three times, and that's what happens. Guess what? It's because Jesus' word always comes to pass. That was a good amen part. Also, though, it also runs deeper than that. This is the way sin works sometimes. Sometimes we can sin, and there was no premeditation, and there was no really anything that led to it. We just kind of slipped up, and oops, shouldn't have done that, and we can correct easily enough. But sometimes there's a pathway that we can follow when it comes to sin, and it leads to stuff like this. If you turn in your Bible to James chapter 1 real quick, because we're sidebarring, we can, we can turn you know, any place we want. James chapter 1, verse 14, this is what this says. It says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. See the pathway there? The pathway, a lot of times, for our sin is this. It starts with a temptation. The, the language we've been using a little bit lately is the bird flies into your barn. Right? Not your fault. It's not a sin to be tempted. Not that you did anything, but Satan is going to try to chuck grenades at you, right? So the bird flies into your barn, the temptation comes, and what we can do, well, we have a couple of options. We can call that out for what it is and go, oh, I'm not doing that. Jesus, please help me, all that. Just leave it, let the bird fly out the other end of the barn. But sometimes what we do is that flies in and we let it build a nest. 
and we start watching it, the temptation. Now, we've got our eyes fixed on it over here instead of Jesus over here, right? And when we are fixing our eyes on that thing, whatever it is, whatever it is, and our eyes are off of Jesus, eventually a seed is going to be planted. That's what it says. Desire gives birth to, it conceives, and it, it gives birth to sin. So eventually, when you're focused on this over here long enough, eventually it's going to turn into sin. You're actually going to act upon it because you've dwelt upon it, and it's grown in you. So now you're acting on it, and sin, when it is fully grown, it leads to death. When you just keep going down that road, man, its hooks are going to be in you. It's going to be causing damage and destruction. It's bad. It's going to harm you. And I would submit to you that Peter has his wrestlings with this. Even just in what we've read in this text in John 18, he has some birds that have flown through the barn, if you will. One of the things that Peter evidently is wrestling with is a need for control. Uh-oh. That would not apply to any of us, I'm sure. Right? But, that, but that's it. The, the mob shows up immediately, instinctively. He just, he just takes matters into his own hands and I'm going to hack and slice my way through this. I'm going to get us through this. He needs to be in control of the situation. Which is a problem because what he's not doing there is trusting in the control that Jesus has over the situation. Same thing when you are trying to wrestle for control in your life, by the way. Let me just, if I could just say something to minister to you, maybe annoy you, you really don't have that much control in your life. You can control some things. Sure you can. You can control what you're going to eat for lunch when you go home. I'm having a bowl of soup, just so you know. Things like that. Yeah, you can control some, but you can't control really a lot of things in your life. It's an illusion. But we try and we claw and we scratch so hard for control. It's foolish. Trust the one who is in control. We, we sung about that earlier. I know who holds the future. We sung that. Came off your lips. I heard you. That's something that Peter's obviously dealing with. And then also he's got this issue with his comfort and his convenience and his self-preservation. Because later on, when people start asking him, hey, don't you know Jesus? Don't you know Jesus? Don't you know Jesus? No, 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 I don't. He just quickly goes to that. When the heat is on, right? I don't want to lose. I, I, I don't want to get hurt. I don't want any conflict coming on to me. See, the issue there is Peter is valuing his life and this world more than he's valuing Jesus. It's really easy to talk the talk like he did. I'll lay down my life for you. Yeah, sure you will. Sure you will. Yeah. I'm glad you bring that up. Yes, it's not written in the Gospel of John, but in another place, Jesus does heal the guy's ear. Yeah, he just restores it, because that's Jesus. Thank you for bringing that up. Anyway, in our hearts, we can have the same thing. I've done this. I suspect you've done this too. When the heat is on, when something's going on, and you come into a situation where it might be in a manner of speaking, inconvenient for you to be a Christian, inconvenient for people to know that you belong to Jesus, inconvenient for you to follow his will and obedience. I don't know him. Maybe you wouldn't use those words necessarily, but we can act those words. And that instinct reveals the condition of our heart. We're loving something more than we're loving him, and that's a problem. And that can result, all of this can result, because we've seen it in Peter, this can result in critical sin in our lives. Just crippling things 
things that do so much damage. Again, I will just remind us, we're all capable. We look at Peter and go, man, what a, what a moron. Well, we're capable of doing the same things too. We really are. So let's get down off our high horses on that. What we need to do, rather than look at Peter and go, how could he blow it so badly? We've got to humble ourselves. And we've got to repent of stuff. We've got to surrender ourselves to Jesus. And we've got to seek his grace. And we've got to keep our eyes on him. That's what we've got to do. And when we stumble, because you're still going to stumble. You're human. Even if you're a Christian, you're going to stumble. Run right to him. Surrender that to him. Give that to him. Be open and honest with him about that. And ask him to restore you and to renew your heart and your mind. Something that's really cool about Peter, we're going to read in a few weeks, Jesus goes on to restore Peter after this critical this critical blow, this critical error that Peter makes, Jesus restores him. I want you to know something. Jesus can restore you as well. I don't know what you're wrestling with. I don't know what birds have made nests in your barn this morning. I don't know what temptations you're wrestling with. I don't know what sin you're wrestling with. I don't know the damage that has been caused and is being caused in your life. But I do know Jesus and I do know the invitation that he makes to each one of us to trust him with it. So we've got to get ourselves. We've got to just make this a regular practice of getting ourselves before God. Run right to him. Because that's where this stuff gets dealt with. It's not through your performance. It's not about you trying harder. It's not about you being more faithful in your church attendance. But please keep coming. We need Jesus. We need Jesus.